brought my chart. Did you have a good week? Good. Did you have a good week? Awesome. Wonderful. How was your reading this week? Were you hanging out in Genesis? Awesome. How about you? Okay, chapter five, good. Awesome. All right, do we have any questions from last week? No, you ready for tonight? Okay, I have a handout. Could somebody get my students a handout? Do you guys have it? You've got one, okay. Um, so that is one downfall, I would say, to exploring God's word is they do not have a, um, there you go, Brother Sam. They do not have a fill in the blank handout. So the first week when I handed that out, that was something that I found on the internet. And I ended up being like, why did it print this way? I didn't like it. So last week I tried to reconfigure it and I had no luck. So tonight I resorted to giving you this outline and on here you'll find all the scriptures and so throughout the week if you're doing your reading and studying you can just take a look at these scriptures because these are the scriptures and the different topics we're going to cover tonight so this little handout would be just a great guide for your personal study time this week and then on the back of it it's blank so if you want to jot down any questions or any notes you have a place to write tonight so that's the best I could do. I'm sorry there's not a better handout on this one, but someone wants to take that task on and make one, that would be awesome. Okay, um, so tonight we um, had left off last week at um, talking about Noah, and we learned that the story of Noah is so much more than a cartoon story of an ark with a bunch of animals that um, it's a pretty incredible story, and it's a true Story. So tonight, we're going to move forward and we're going to be talking first about the origin of languages and the beginning of the nations. So after the flood, God told Noah and his sons to go and replenish the earth. And he told them, he commanded them to go and spread out and to just be fruitful and multiply. We've heard that before, right? It's what he has been telling them, you know, earlier on there with Adam and Eve. And so this is a command that he gave to the human race. Once again, however, we have a problem. It seems like these humans cannot get it together and do what the Lord commands, right? So once again, the overwhelming majority of humankind disobeyed the voice of God. Instead of spreading out all over the earth, they located themselves in one specific area, and they just decided, somebody had an idea, like they thought it was going to be a good idea, and they decided that they were going to stay put right there in that specific area, and they were going to build themselves a great big city, all right? And let's turn to Genesis 11, so we're all the way to chapter 11 now. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So notice here that there is a self-centeredness. It was all about them and what they wanted and not what God had commanded them to do. God told them to spread out. And they said there um, in verse 4, we need to make a name for ourselves. We don't want to be scattered upon the whole face of the earth. And so... They completely disregarded God's commandment. He wanted them to scatter over the whole earth and replenish it, but they wanted to build a city and a tower, and it was going to be a center, a center place for all of humankind. 
And they would come together and they would have one language and they would have all of their great ideas. And in other words, they wanted it to be all about them and what they desired and what they wanted to build for themselves, this great tower that was going to reach up into the heavens. And this was exactly opposite of what God told them to do. So many times we see humanity doing the exact opposite of what God commands them to do. Right. We're not very far in the book. And how many times have we had this discussion at this table where we've said, they didn't do what God said. They didn't do what God told them. They disobeyed the Lord, right? It is in our human flesh to do such a thing, to disobey God, to not do what God knows is best for us, but to go about our own way, fulfilling our own desires. So up to this time, everyone on the earth spoke the same language. Essentially, there was only one nation on the face of the earth, and so this became the people's goal, that they were going to construct this great city, and it was possible to do so because there was no dividing of languages, there was no confusion, they could all communicate, they could all, you know, make their plan together. And so the Lord was watching, and he observed this, and in verses 6 and 7, he says, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech." So as a parent, y'all know how this goes. You ever like get your kids all together in one room with no supervision and they're conniving and they're making their little plans and it gets real quiet and you're like, what are they up to? They're all in there and they're conniving something and it's real quiet. I better go check on them. That's how I imagine that the Lord was in this moment. He was like, I see what are they up to. They are all down there working out their little plan. So he put a stop to their sinful efforts, and he introduced different languages among them. They could no longer communicate sufficiently to complete this project. And they then began to spread over the face of the earth. He scattered them. Everybody would go and find a place with those to whom they could talk. So that reminds me of like, you ever played a game where it's like they pin something on your back or, you know, and you have to go find somebody who's like you. And I, I imagine that's much like what it was like. They were probably going around like, do you speak English? Do you speak Latin? Do you speak Hebrew? Trying to find somebody that could understand what they were saying. And when they found their group, that group would then go and scatter and find a place to live and dwell because they could communicate with each other. They might not be able to talk to this group over here, but they could talk to one another. So they went and they found people that they could effectively communicate with, and um, they began to live and abide together. So the judgment of God caused the origin of language and the beginning of nations. So before, there was no division of language. Everyone could understand one another. And before, there was no divided nations at this point. Everyone was one people. But God saw what they were up to, and he saw their sinful nature, and he knew if I let this go on, it's not going to end well. They're going to destroy themselves. It had already happened once, the wickedness, and he had to send the judgment of the flood. So... Um, as a result, the earth was repopulated by the descendants of Noah as follows. Now, I'm going to just break down some scripture because over the next um, chapter 2 here, you're going to, no, for the rest of chapter 11, it breaks down the different descendants of um, Noah's sons. And so I'm just going to summarize that very quickly so we don't have to read through all of that right now, but you can read that this week. So the first one is Shem. Remember we said he had a son named Shem. Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, 
are Faxad, Lud, and Aram. And some of the nations that came from these sons were the Persians, Assyrians, Chaldeans, Hebrews, Lydians, and Syrians. And these people groups settled in Assyria, Syria, Persia, Northern Arabia, and Mesopotamia. Okay? Ham, yes, his name was Ham. I'm sure that, you know, that just probably got a lot of bacon jokes. But his name was Ham, and Ham's sons were Cush, Mizram, Phut, and Canaan. Some of the nations to spring from these men were the Ethiopians, Egyptians, Libyans, and Canaanites. Ham's descendants settled in Africa and Arabia. Okay? Then we had Japheth, and that was Noah's third son. Japheth's sons were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. From them came the Russians, Germans, Britons, Scythians, Medes, Ionians, Athenians, Iberians, and Thracians. And these people groups dispersed and settled in Asia Minor, Caucasia, and Europe. That's probably you, Brother Sam. You're probably a son of Japheth. You too. So, unless you have some African or Asian heritage we don't know about, that's probably you. So, um, Japheth's sons were of those people groups, Ham's sons and Shem's sons. And we can see how they just kind of scattered and settled in these different regions, and they just started living. And these groups could communicate with one another. And so now we have a division of nations, a division of peoples, and we have a division of language that we did not have up until this point. Okay, so um, let's flip to our second chart, and we're going to learn about of all of these people groups and all of these nations that were formed in these different languages, we now have a chosen people um, because we're going to fast forward a little bit here and we're going to hear the stories of several incredible men tonight, okay? And some of them you've, I'm sure you've heard, but we're going to just revisit these stories and see what we can learn from them. So as in the days of Noah, God began to look upon the earth and he found that they were dispersed, they were scattered, they were being fruitful, they were multiplying, and all seemed well for a little while. So he began to realize that there was a lot of wickedness on the earth, as always. And he looked upon the earth and he found a man with whom he could make a covenant. God is a covenant making God. He loves to make covenants with his people, promises, agreements with his people, and he was looking for someone with whom that he could make a covenant. This man that he found had come from Ur of the Chaldees with his father Terah. The man's name was Abram. And the Lord told Abram to leave his country his family, and his father's house to journey to a land that God would show him. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, let's see what God promised to Abram. He said, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram obeyed the Lord. He had this promise from God. God was calling him to go somewhere different. And Abram obeyed and left his home when he was 75 years old. Now remember last week we talked about how at this time they were living a whole lot longer than what we live today. All right? But... The world was a different place. The human race was, was different. So there's reasons for that. But Abram was 75 years old, 
he took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, and they traveled to the land of Canaan. When the Lord called Abram, he had no children. 75 years old, okay? He had no children. Part of God's promise was that he would make of Abram a great nation, right? We just read that. God promised him, if you'll obey me, I will make you a great nation. If you'll do what I've called you to do, I will make of you a great nation. Well, this promise was fulfilled through the Hebrew people, as we're going to see, but it took some time, and it took a struggle, okay? It didn't just happen overnight. And so the first person we're going to talk about here in Abram's story is Ishmael, all right? So before we talk about Isaac, we're going to talk about Ishmael. The days passed, and there was no physical sign that God was going to keep his promise to Abram. In other words, Sarai was just getting older, and there were no babies, all right? Finally, as human beings often do, Abram and Sarai decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands. Oh boy, that's not going to go well. Here we go, yes. Sarai had an Egyptian handmaid, her name was Hagar, and she said unto Abraham, Behold now, the Lord, basically she said, he's not given me a child, and so go in to my handmaiden, and I can have children through her. All right? Abram acted on his wife's counsel, and I know this sounds very strange and unusual to us, but it was kind of a custom at the time that they had handmaidens and they would call on them for these matters. So it was a cultural custom. Wasn't something that God told them to do. Obviously, it was not a part of God's plan. It was a part of their culture. And later in Scripture, God deals with this cultural custom, and he says, one man and one wife, there's not going to be multiple, there's not going to be extra marital relationships. So that's why we read this, and we're kind of like, wait, what? But notice, it was not God telling them to do this. This was not part of God's plan. This was them taking matters into their own hands. Ishmael was born out of this union with Abram and Hagar. By trying to help God out... Because they could see no visible sign of his promise happening, they decided they were going to, like I always say to our ladies group, they were going to be little Jesus helpers. They were going to be little God helpers, and they were going to help him out. They thought he needed some assistance. So Abram and Sarai brought many sorrows to their family. Ishmael and their son Isaac would have many conflicts in years to come. And because of this conflict between Ishmael and Isaac, seeds of conflict were sown between the Arabs and the Jews. So the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac were the nations that would come from these two men, and they would battle against one another just as their fathers did. And we still see that battle happening today, right? fighting over land and the Holy Land, and it's, a, it's been a constant battle. Okay, so when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. So Abram fell on his face before God, and the Lord continued to talk to him. And he renewed his promise that he had made many years prior. Even though Abram had tried to take matters in his own hands and they had made this mistake, God shows his mercy and renews this promise. And he promises to make him a father of many nations. And it was in this moment, where in Genesis chapter 17, it was in this moment that God renewed his covenant and he also changed his name. He changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means high father, and Abraham means father of a multitude. And he also changed Sarai's name to Sarah. Sarai means princess, but Sarah means my princess. So God created a covenant with this couple, and God gave a token of his covenant he always likes to create these covenants, and he likes to give tokens, reminders, right? 
Remember the reminder of the covenant that he gave to Noah? He put the rainbow in the sky. And so whenever he makes a promise and goes into a covenant, he gives a reminder of this covenant. And I have to think that the reminder is probably more for us than it is for God. He wants us to have that reminder ever before us of what he has promised. And so in Genesis 17, 10 and 11, God speaks of this covenant and this reminder that would be between them, this token. And that was that every man child among you would be circumcised. And so Abraham took his son Ishmael with all the male members of his household, and they were circumcised that same day in obedience to God's word. So strife developed, and some time had passed here, and some strife developed between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and those of Lot. The problem was that Abraham and Lot were very rich, and they had many flocks, herds, and tents, and the land was not able to bear them all. And so Abraham went to Lot and said, I don't want any trouble. I don't want any strife between us and between our men. And he said, so let's just separate. Let's go our separate ways. And um, Abraham gave Lot a very, he extended a very gracious offer to him. And Abraham allowed Lot, his nephew, to make the first choice of the land where he would go and reside. So Lot had seen this well-watered plain of Jordan, and he chose that for himself. It looked good to him, looked like a good place to live. So he journeyed east and separated himself from Abraham, and he went in the direction of a city called Sodom. This proved to be a great mistake for Lot, for the people of Sodom were very wicked and they were terrible sinners in the Lord's eyes. There was wickedness in Sodom and the neighboring sister city of Gomorrah. It was a very dangerous and wicked and sinful place. But Abraham, or I'm sorry, Lot thought that the land just nearby there looked really nice. And so this is a reminder to us that it is always dangerous for us to go in the direction of sin. We want to go the opposite direction. No matter how good and enticing it might look and it might appear, we want to go in the opposite direction of anything that is sinful and wicked. We don't want to be near it. We don't want to set up our families near it. Because things did not go well for Lot and his family because of this decision. God seen that the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah was growing. It was multiplying, okay? And Abraham's nephew Lot was living nearby with his family. And so the Lord appeared to Abraham and informed him that he was going to destroy these two cities. Now remember, he said he wouldn't destroy by flood, right, the whole earth, but he was going to destroy these two cities. So there is a judgment for this wickedness. And so Abraham, knowing that his relatives lived in the doomed city of Sodom, he sought the Lord to spare the city. The Lord agreed, okay, Abraham, I hear you. And he's, he agreed if Abraham could find only 10 righteous people that he would spare the city. Sadly, Sodom and Gomorrah was that wicked, so wicked that there was not even 10 righteous people that could be located in the city limits. All right, it was a very wicked place. And so the angels visited Lot and removed him, his wife, and two of his unmarried daughters from the city. God sent angels of mercy to Sodom to warn them, to get them out of that place before he destroyed it. The prayers of Abraham did not save the entire city, but they did save Lot. And so Abraham's prayers were not in vain. He begged God. He interceded. That's what you call an intercession or an intercessory prayer. When you pray on behalf of someone else and you ask for God's mercy on their behalf. And so Abraham's prayers of intercession saved Lot, but it didn't save the whole city. So Lot, if we focus in on that person, 
and those that escaped, Lot's daughters. We see that Lot was so blessed to have an uncle who stayed close to the Lord and prayed for him. Don't you think so? Lot was blessed to have that. And so are the people in our families that we're praying for, that we're believing for. God, God has, he listens to our prayers on their behalf. And our lost loved ones are so blessed to have the people of God praying for them. So pray for them and believe that, you know, that God can touch them, God can save them. Lot's error um, took its toll on his family, though, because he had to leave behind daughters who had married men of Sodom. He had some girls that had married some wicked men in the men of Sodom, or in the city of Sodom, and they were left in this destruction. In disobedience to the angel's commands, Lot's wife looked back as they were running away and they were fleeing the city and she was turned to a pillar of salt because God said, go and don't look back. Lot and his two unmarried daughters fled for their lives. So poor Lot, he had a lot of loss here. Because of the great wickedness of these cities, God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. Today, these cities have been wiped off the face of the earth. They cannot be found. Um, some Bible scholars believe that the destruction of these two cities may have connected with the formation of the Dead Sea. So that's a possibility. But we don't know. We don't know exactly where they were. There's no evidence of them. They're gone. The Lord destroyed them. The judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah stands forever as a warning to any of us who would violate God's word. 2 Peter 2 and 6 in the New Testament tells us, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So once again, we see that God is a God of mercy. He always provides a way of escape. He always sends a preacher, an intercessor, somebody to give the warning and to provide a way of escape. But judgment is coming. And as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, so will it be in our day. Judgment is coming, and we've got to be prepared. It's time for us to prepare. Finally, in God's time, Sarah did conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Abraham named the child Isaac and circumcised him according to the covenant when he was eight days old. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Brother Sam, think about having any kids when you're 100? <laughs> oh. 52 was close enough. God had kept his promise, but he was not finished trying and testing Abraham's faith. So finally, Abraham had his son that was promised, Isaac. Not the one that he brought about through his own doings, Ishmael, but he had the promised one. And God then says to Abraham, and we're just jumping ahead to chapter 22, God tells Abraham to go and take his son out to the land of Moriah and offer him as an offering. So can you imagine what was going through Abraham's mind? God had promised him a son, and then the promise would go to be take, had, had taken, had already taken many years to be fulfilled. And then finally he has this son and God says, go sacrifice him on an altar. I don't really think that God wanted Abraham to sacrifice and murder his son. He was testing him. Abraham was a man of great faith and he knew that Isaac was the promised son that God had given him. And he believed that God was going to raise up the nations, the offspring, through Isaac that had been promised. So he just knew this story can't end this way. And so he trusted God. And he knew that God would be true to his word. So in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. 
And he that had received the promises offered up his only son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So Abraham obeyed, and they, he took his son, and they went on a journey. On the third day of their journey, Abraham saw in the distance the mountain Moriah, upon which God had commanded that he offer Isaac. He told his servants that were traveling with him to stay behind, and he and Isaac were going to go up on the mountain and worship. Abraham's faith is still clear to us in a statement that he made to the servants. In Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. His faith can be seen in this scripture. He believed that God had a purpose and that this task that he was about to perform, that God had a plan. He trusted. I can't imagine it, but he trusted God in this situation. As Abraham and Isaac traveled toward their destination, Isaac took notice of something. He was old enough to take notice of something. He was a young, young boy at this time, a young man, and he noticed that um, they had everything that they were supposed to have except for the sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice, the animal that is going on the altar? And God, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham answers and says, my son, God will provide a lamb. He will provide the sacrifice. After they had prepared the altar, Abraham bound his son and placed him on the altar then stretched forth his hand with the knife to slay his son. At that moment, the angel of the Lord appeared. Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he answered. And the angel said, do not touch the lad. Don't lay your hand on him. So Abraham's faith had been tested by what was very dear to him. And he came through the test. He passed the test victoriously. After Abraham heard the voice of the angel, he turned and he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket nearby. God provided the sacrifice. And this is not just a great story, but it's also prophetic in that it's prophesying, it's telling us of what is to come. Many years later, Jesus, who was God manifest in the flesh, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, would come to take away the sins of the world. He would be the ultimate sacrifice. So in, our, in the history of our country, men have traveled by horseback. They've had to cross rivers. They've had to look at swirling waters around them, and they would become dizzy and they would fall off the saddle and be swept away if they allowed their eyes to focus on the test, the trial. But if they, if they would fix their eyes on the other bank, on the other side, a tree, a large rock, the hillside, they could safely pass through the rough waters. So that's what we learn from Abraham's story here, that in the storms of life, faith gives us balance. Faith gives us a calmness like we experienced in prayer meeting tonight. Faith gives us victory. Faith gets us to the other side when we don't understand it, when we don't, we don't like it, it doesn't make us feel comfortable, it's hard to walk through. Faith is what gets us there. And God will always, he's the solid rock, and he will always get us through to the other side. Just as he did for Abraham, he'll do for us. He will provide the ram in the thicket, if we will put our faith and our trust in him. All right, next chart, the chosen people. So it was through Isaac that God had promised to raise up these descendants to Abraham. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now this story might sound kind of familiar because we talked about Cain and Abel and those brothers that just couldn't get along and they were very, very, very different from one another. Remember we said you can have these two kids, same family, same upbringing, and they're just completely different. And 
the Lord had said to Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb, two manners of people. The one will be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. So Esau, the older son, was a good hunter. Right? Kind of like Esau, huh? He might have had a spiffy camo shirt like the one you're wearing tonight. Probably not. He was a good hunter, and he was a man of the field. Jacob was a man of the plains who dwelled in tents. So he worked with the animals. And so they were very, very different in personality. Jacob was the younger of the two, and he was making stew one day when Esau came in from the field. Esau was hungry, and he asked for some, some porridge, some stew. Esau appears to be a man who was very concerned with fleshly, physical things. Okay? He was guided by his senses, his emotions. He was guided by his hunger. When he was hungry, satisfying his appetite was the most important thing in the world to him. Nothing else mattered. I guess you could say he didn't just get hungry, he got hangry, as they say, right? Jacob, on the other hand, had an appreciation for spiritual things. Although he was not perfect, okay? In response to Esau's request, Jacob said, okay, you can have some soup, sell me your birthright. So the birthright was a privilege that was given to the oldest son. And even though these two men were twins, one was born first, right? And so he had the birthright. It gave him the preferred treatment in the family. And it also gave him first claim on the inheritance. And so Esau was so consumed with the present, with the fleshly desires rather than the future, that he answered, oh, I'm about to die. He's really dramatic, too. He's really, like, up in his emotions and very dramatic. He says, I am at the point I will die. Now, do you think he was really starving to death? Probably not. And he said, what profit will this birthright be to me? He's like, just take it. I don't even want it. I'm that hungry. And so the deal was done. And Esau arose and went his way and had sold out the most valuable blessing for a temporary fleshly satisfaction. How sad is it when confronted with a choice of preparing for the future of eternity? People today are much like this. You could prepare the future, you could prepare for eternity, but instead we choose a small measure of satisfaction in the moment. We choose sin because we like the way it makes us feel. We choose to go down the wrong path because we, we care more about our own wants and desires than we do the future and the eternity that is before us. We care more about the present. Some people are looking so much at things that are seen that they don't pay any mind to the things that are eternal, the things that are ahead of us. So in this dramatic scene of Jacob gaining Esau's birthright, this is not the last encounter over family blessings. When Isaac was old and his vision became bad, he called Esau, his favorite of the two boys, and he asked Esau to go into the field with his bow and arrow for some venison. I know you're liking this story. And, and Mary, you like to hunt too, so this is, we're liking this story. Isaac enjoyed the meat, and what part do you think he ate? Backstrap. Could be. Is that your favorite part? Okay. Well, we know that Isaac enjoyed it. He enjoyed the meat very much, and he wanted um, to eat some prior to bestowing upon Esau the blessing that's due to the firstborn. Rebecca heard Isaac's instructions to Esau, and she instructed Jacob, who was her favorite son, to bring her two kids of the goats. She prepared the meat that Isaac liked and disguised Jacob by putting the goat skins on Jacob's hands and neck and giving him Esau's clothes. Then, pretending to be Esau, Jacob went to his blind father and presented Isaac with the meat. Isaac was surprised that Esau had returned so soon with this meat. And he was a bit skeptical. He called Jacob near so that he could touch him. And he said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. But Isaac was unable to tell 
that it was Jacob. And so he gave Jacob the blessing. He blessed um, Jacob and gave Jacob Esau's blessing. So shortly after this, just as Jacob had left his father, Esau came in from the hunt. And Isaac was very upset that he had been deceived and he'd been lied to. Esau cried out with a bitter cry, but the blessing could not be reversed. He'd already spoken it. Can't take our words back, right? Once they're spoken. Esau hated Jacob and planned to kill him. Told you we'd just heard this story and a couple other brothers last week. Rebekah heard of his plans and urged Jacob to flee to where her brother lived. As Jacob traveled, he came to a place called Luz, and he was prepared to stay the night. And while he slept, he had a dream. The angels of God were ascending and descending on a ladder. Jacob awoke, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And we see that Jacob remembered the house of the Lord when he woke up. Early in the morning, he rose up, and he set a pillar of stones there that he'd used for pillows. He poured oil on it, and he called this place Bethel, which means the house of God. And God renewed with Jacob the covenant that he had made with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. So this covenant is being passed down to generations, right? This blessing. Twenty years later, after Jacob had spent time with his uncle and had begun his family, he was on his way back to see his aged father. He heard that Esau was going to meet him, and he got fearful because he remembered that my brother wants to kill me. And he set his family on, and Jacob stayed behind. An angel of the Lord wrestled with him all night, and the angel saw that Jacob was not going to release him. He touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, permanently shrinking the sinew and the bone and causing him to have a permanent limp. The angel said, let me go for the day breaks. It's morning. We've done this all night. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The angel asked, what is thy name? Jacob, he replied, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. He changed his name. Because of his persistence, Jacob received the blessing that he desired, and he left that place a different man with a new name. His former name, Jacob, meant supplanter, which means trickery or deceit. His new name, Israel, meant he who strives with God. And also, after this encounter, there was a physical difference in him. Every time he took a step, his limp would remind him of this encounter with the angel of the Lord. So when we come into the presence of God and determine that we are going to receive God's best, a miraculous change will take place. We'll leave with a new name, and we'll leave different. We never leave the presence of God the same. You experience that? Yes. All right, so we're going on to chart number four at this time, and we're going to talk briefly here about the chosen people. God had reaffirmed his covenant with Jacob, who is now being called Israel, and Jacob had fathered 12 sons, one of his sons, Joseph, was chosen by God to be a preserver of the family of Jacob. Joseph had dreams. He was very sensitive to the Lord. Joseph was, if you're trying to find me, I'm all the way now in like chapter 37. I'm way up there. Yeah, we were moving right through Genesis tonight. Um, Joseph was sensitive to the Lord, and he had a very high character. And his, his brothers became very jealous of him um, because they, they saw that their father had loved him more than all of the other sons. So later on, Joseph had some dreams, and it suggested that his brothers and his mother and his father would all bow down to him. Well, you can imagine that when he starts sharing these dreams with his family that his brothers didn't like that very well. They were, they were not too keen on the idea of bowing down to their brother. So Joseph's brothers plotted against him, and they sold him into slavery. And one day when Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers, they saw this opportunity to get rid of him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to some Midianite merchants for 20 pieces of silver. The Midianites took him into Egypt. They sold him to a man named Potiphar. And this was one of Pharaoh's officers and a captain of the guard. 
So after having disposed of Joseph, the brothers took a goat and killed it. They dipped Joseph's beautiful coat his father had given him in blood. They brought the coat back to their dad and they said, isn't this your son's coat? And he said, yes. And he thought that a, a, an animal had devoured him and killed him. And he was very upset. And so Jacob could not be comforted. He mourned. And Joseph um, was now in Egypt. And being the godly man that he was, he did his very best to make do in his situation and to serve in Potiphar's house. He had every reason to be bitter, don't you think? Every reason to, he had every excuse to say, you know, my life is terrible and I'm just going to give up now. Um, but instead, he served his master very diligently. Potiphar recognized it and saw that God was with him and everything Joseph did prospered. So Potiphar made Joseph the overseer of all that he had. Potiphar concerned, concerned himself only with the food that was set before him to eat. These people really love their food, don't they? And Joseph took care of everything else. He took care of all the man's business, his household. He did it all for him. So Joseph's trials are not over. He's in Egypt. He's in a strange place. He's working for Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife became infatuated with him. She was after him. Daily, she was tempting him to commit adultery with her. He steadfastly refused her advances. And one day, he ran from her presence. She grabbed a part of his clothing. And seeing that she was rejected, she was not happy. So she accused Joseph of trying to assault her. And she used his garment of clothing as proof. Potiphar was so upset, and he put Joseph in prison. He believed his wife. Even in prison, Joseph kept the right attitude. He refused to become bitter. And once again, don't you think he had every excuse to become bitter with his circumstances and angry and just kind of give up on life? Here he's in prison now for something he didn't do. And while he's in prison, he was looking for opportunities to serve God. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners, put him in charge. And in prison, God blessed Joseph, and he began to prepare a way for the fulfillment of his plan. In the prison, there were two men who'd served Pharaoh. One was the chief butler, and the other was the chief baker. They both had dreams. Now remember, Joseph was very sensitive spiritually, and he understood dreams. So Joseph was able to interpret these dreams. True to Joseph's interpretation, the butler was restored to his position, and the baker was hanged. So, at the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream, and none of the men could interpret it. And that's when the butler remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh, I think I know a guy who can help you out with your dream. I've seen it in action. I've seen what he can do. He's very sensitive, and he can interpret these dreams and he might be able to help you. So Pharaoh called for Joseph out of prison, and he told him the significance of his dream. He was able to tell Pharaoh that Egypt would experience seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So Pharaoh promoted Joseph to the position of the second most powerful ruler in all of Egypt. And he gave this 30-year-old Hebrew... In Egypt, remember, he's not in his homeland. He's not with his people. He's a foreigner. They don't like the, the Hebrews. They don't care for him. As a matter of fact, they detested them. And he gives this 30-year-old Hebrew the responsibility of storing up food during the seven years of plenty and to prepare the nation of Egypt for this horrible famine that was to come. And Joseph experienced two periods of bondage in his life. The first is when his brothers sold him into slavery. The second, when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of attempted rape. Joseph did not let his circumstances define him. Instead, he worked hard. He trusted God. He tried to just live above it all. He was rewarded with the promotion for his good work. Each of us 
I'm sure can attest that we've experienced some kind of bondage. Unlike Joseph, our bondage is not usually physical. We're not usually bound up in prison or sold into slavery as he was. But we're in bondage to our flesh, to our lusts, our desires, to our own sinfulness. We are in bondage to it. However, we can live free from bondage if we are willing to trust in the Lord and we're willing to commit our lives to his ways and his path, even when it feels like it's all falling apart, if we would surrender ourselves to him, he sets us free from bondage. So we're going to, um, am I on the right chart? No, I didn't flip, did I? I'm sorry, guys. I have to say something and keep me in line. All right, so Joseph was elevated. Joseph's, um, he was elevated under Pharaoh, and everything that Joseph said was going to happen, happened. All right, God had given this young man a gift. He had gifted him supernaturally. Not everyone has that gift, right? Not everyone can interpret dreams and be so sensitive to what God is warning his people. But Joseph had this incredible gift, and when the famine came to Egypt, it also affected the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family was still living. So when Jacob heard that Egypt had grain, he sent his sons, all except the youngest son, Benjamin, to buy some. Why do you think he might have kept Benjamin home? No idea? He sent all of his sons except Benjamin. He said, we're in a famine, it's hard times, go and get us some grain, but Benjamin, you have to stay with me. The man had experienced a lot of loss, and he'd lost his beloved Joseph. He thought Joseph was dead. And so he didn't want to lose everybody. He didn't want to lose Benjamin, his baby. So he told Benjamin, you have to stay home. The person in charge of selling grain, when the, when the brothers got to Egypt, the person in charge of selling grain was Joseph. And just as he had dreamed many years before, his brothers came before him, and guess what they did? They bowed down before Joseph. They didn't recognize him. They bowed down and they said, we need help. We're starving. There's a famine in the land and we've come to you for help. Joseph disguised himself and he spoke very roughly, trying to find out if his father was still alive and he was attempting to devise a plan to get his father to Egypt. He accused his brothers of being spies they denied the charges, and they said that they were all the sons of one man. Joseph took one of them, Simeon, and bound him until the others could return with their youngest brother. So he took his brother, Simeon, hostage and said, Go and get your younger brother, Benjamin, as proof of your innocence. Jacob was greatly troubled and refused to send Benjamin for fear that he was never going to return. But when the famine grew worse, the family had no choice but to comply so Judah took personal responsibility for Benjamin. Judah was another one of these brothers. He took personal responsibility, and the brothers traveled to Egypt once again. This time, Joseph devised a plan to keep Benjamin, which involved secretly returning the brothers' money in the mouth of their sacks and putting his personal silver cup in the sack of Benjamin. When the brothers were stopped by Joseph's servant and returned to him, Joseph could no longer keep it up. He wept out loud and he said, I am Joseph. I'm your brother. And he asked them, does my father live? Is he alive? His brothers were troubled, as you can imagine. They were surprised and they could not answer him. And then Joseph, once again, had every reason to be bitter, to be harsh, to be unforgiving, but he said, now therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. We read that statement in Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Jacob, Jacob and his family had gone through this horrific experience and this tragedy, and all of this trouble had come to their household. 
but God has a plan. And we're going to begin to see that plan unfold. Long before the New Testament was ever written, Joseph had learned one of the most valuable lessons that we can ever learn. And we're going to turn to this scripture as we get ready to close tonight. Romans 8, 28. This is in the New Testament. This is one of those ones that you highlight, you mark, you remember, you memorize, and you refer to it many, many, many times over. This is one of my favorite scriptures. I know I say that about a lot of them, but this is one that we all need. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts, Romans, right about there. Good. Romans 8, 28. All right. We all there? It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God had a purpose for Joseph. And all the things that went on in his life, all of these tragedies, he could have been bitter, but he didn't. He didn't get bitter. Instead, he made this statement in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He said, you thought evil against me? But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So Joseph, his horrible circumstances, being sold by his brothers, ending up in Egypt, being accused by Potiphar's wife, being thrown into prison, all of these things ended up working together because he was at just the right place at just the right time. He met the butler. Do you see how God was just ordering his steps? Even in prison, he met the butler who then could tell Pharaoh, this is your guy. And then Joseph was elevated into a position where he could help save an entire nation and not just the nation of Egypt, but God orchestrated it so that he could save his chosen people, the Israelites, Joseph's own family. So all things, as it says in Romans, all things work together for good to them that love God. God has a purpose in our suffering, in our trials, in our circumstances, in everything that we go through. God has a purpose for it. And we don't always understand it in the moment. We don't always like it in the moment. But we have to trust God and have that faith of Abraham, that faith of Isaac, that faith of Jacob, the faith of Joseph, these incredible stories we've heard tonight. If we can have faith like these men to just trust God we know that his plan is so much greater than anything we could think or imagine, right? So Joseph supplied his brothers with wagons and equipment. They went back to Canaan, and they brought their father Jacob back to Egypt. And guess where they settled? A land called Goshen. What we talked about a couple Sundays ago. It was the best land in all of Egypt. It was choice land. If you could cho choose the land where you wanted to live, that was where you wanted to be. And it was here in Goshen that they enjoyed many years of blessings, peace, and plenty while Joseph was alive. God preserved that family because he has a very special plan. And we're going to see this plan continues to unfold, not just through these incredible men. These are the men that we call the patriarchs of the faith. These are incredible stories we've heard tonight, incredible men. And God provided and supplied for them, but the story doesn't end here. There's still a purpose. And God used the stories of these men to set up the next miracle, the next saving of his people, his chosen ones. And we're going to talk about that in our next lesson, in lesson four. We have any questions tonight? Comments? All right, let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, God, for these incredible stories of faith. God, give us faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. God, help us to understand that all of our circumstances are for your purpose to be fulfilled in us and through us, God. I pray that you would take this word and that you would put it deep in our hearts, Lord. Let us think on it this week, God. Let us read from your word and be encouraged, God, and let us remember that all things, all things, the good and the bad, they all work together for our good and for your purpose, God. Remind us of this truth, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give us your blessing tonight and bless this, this word in our hearts, God. Let it not be taken from us, God, but strengthen this word in our hearts and our minds and give us great understanding of what we've heard. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things tonight. Amen. Amen.